0: Good morning. Our, uh, our text this morning is going to come from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, but we're kind of jumping into the middle of the story, and so I thought that I would begin by filling out a little bit of the context for what we are about to hear. Uh, Mark is a hurried gospel, which is to say that we get the sense immediately that we're going somewhere important. But we're not really sure where. Of course, uh, we in the 21st century know where this story is eventually going to go, but Mark tells it in such a way that kind of keeps us guessing as to what's next, what's around each corner. It doesn't concern itself with the details of Christ's birth or early family life, and uh, it kind of it, it opens with the witness of John the Baptist and the beginning of of Christ's ministry, but it rushes past. Christ's baptism and temptation to discover really, I think, what Mark is all, is all about, which is discipleship. We're not even through the first chapter when Jesus calls his first disciples to come and to follow him. So right off the bat, we get the sense that this, this is about discipleship. One author summarizes the gospel like this. It is about how 12 ordinary men met Jesus and entered into a new dimension of living. Which is to say that it is about us too, since we too are people who have met Jesus and have entered into a new dimension of living. In our text for this morning, Jesus has been holding court with the various religious leaders and the culturally elite. Uh, He's been responding to their tricky questions. He's been telling stories and parables, and he's been teaching about this thing called the kingdom of God. As is fairly typical when Jesus is surrounded by religious leaders, they're not faring very well. With the exception of one scribe whom Jesus tells is not far from the kingdom of God. Because he seems to understand that the greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, is more important than any religious activity. Despite this, Jesus continues to warn his disciples of the spiritual blindness of the religious leaders and the cultural elite, who live according to this way of life, according to the way of this world, but who miss the kingdom of God. One of the major themes in the Gospel of Mark is that those who should know often don't. Those who should see often are blind. And those who we wouldn't expect to actually see things clearly are the ones who show up and point us uh, to the the right way. And one of those characters we're going to meet this morning. Our text is Mark 12, verses 38 through 44. Listen now for the word of the Lord. As Jesus taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. And to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. And he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious God. Speak now your liberating and reconciling word. Give us the grace that we so desperately need to hear it and obey it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I don't know about you, but for some reason, I find great satisfaction in discovering that Jesus was the original people watcher. From his time spent observing the crowds, we're given two snapshots of discipleship that we can compare this morning. One which we might call, here I am, discipleship, and the other which we might call, there you are, discipleship. Here I am, discipleship, is discipleship which is required by self-importance, I'm sorry, is characterized by self-importance, notoriety, and religious performance. We see it embodied in this story by the scribes whom Jesus criticizes, Most importantly, it is a form of discipleship which attempts to maintain control of parts of one's life that have been claimed by Christ. Here I am, discipleship, lives on what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. Grace that does not require transformation. Forgiveness, which does not require repentance. Grace that means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Cheap grace is the kind of grace we bestow on ourselves but rarely give to other people. The here I am disciple, here's the call of discipleship but never gets out of the boat, never drops the nets to follow after Christ. To be fair, it is a form of discipleship that I think starts, likely starts out with good intentions but gets lost in the showmanship I mean, I can sympathize with these scribes. I mean, I have just bought a robe. (laughs) You have seen me wearing it. It's a little bit too long. I preach in this robe. I pray long prayers. It's very easy to get caught up in the show. And maybe you can sympathize with them as well. Maybe you too have discovered times in your life where you were following Christ as you initially had set out to do, only to discover that you too had gotten lost in the show. It's much easier, I think, than we often realize. It's much more subtle. kind of creeps along. But the scribes should know better. I mean, this is why this passage is so disruptive for us. They should know better. After all, we know that one of the scribes understood the point of all religious piety was to learn to love God and to love neighbor better. To learn to live your life in service to God and worship and to your community uh, to to serve other people. And yet the scribes are victims of their own piety. They're caught up in being seen rather than helping those who are most vulnerable, in this case, the widows that they were charged to care for. Theologically, scribes are oblivious to the upside-down, topsy-turvy, scrambled-up kingdom of God. In which the least are the greatest and the last are first. They're just missing it big time. Of course, we have our own versions of this kind of here I am discipleship in our modern world as well. This version of discipleship is typically the most common critique leveled at the church by the rising population of nuns. I don't mean like nuns that take vows. I mean that categorization of people who identify as none of the above on any sort of religious survey. They are religiously unaffiliated. They are nuns. They make up 23% of our adult adult population, 35% of our millennial population. It's growing. Folks who would say I don't religiously identify. And the most common one of the most common critiques is that the church has this long history, legacy of self-importance and piety but often at the expense of other people, especially those who are most vulnerable in our society. To be honest, the nuns have a point. They do. The church does have this history. We have to be honest about it. We have to confess it. We need to be aware of it. I understand why someone would be turned off. I do. But I'm not convinced all forms of here-I-am discipleship are corrupt, self-seeking, or self-righteous. In a way, I think, here I am discipleship is the perfect defense mechanism for our own anxieties and doubts. Think about it. Here I am discipleship in the way of the scribes has a tradition. It has a fashion. And it has a liturgy. The thing about tradition, fashion, and liturgy is that it's easy for us to hide within them. This is true for pastors. This is true for anyone that comes, comes to church. It's very easy for us to hide in the crowd. No one will notice our doubts, our fears, our anxieties if we just go with the flow. So we adopt this form of discipleship that helps us kind of maintain control over parts of our lives, just as the scribes did. But for most of this for whom this is true, I, don't, I really don't think it's about pride, about corruption, about self-importance. I really think that it's about our doubt. We want to maintain control over parts of our lives because we're just not sure we can go all in. There are too many compelling reasons not to believe. There's too many questions left unanswered. So we stayed in arm's length, hidden in the tradition, hidden in the fashion, hidden in the liturgy. And I think for a time that that's okay. I mean, one of the greatest gifts of Christian community is that we're able to uphold the faith of others who are struggling to stand in the gap for those who utter, I believe, help my unbelief. But you don't want to stay there forever. That doubt will start to to turn to despair, and you'll miss the joy of a life lived in Christ. I don't mean to sound unsympathetic to doubt. The philosopher Charles Taylor suggests that we're living in a secular age in which faith of any kind is accompanied by doubt often crushing doubt. I think this is one reason we see such a rise in the nuns. Taylor observes that while it was virtually impossible not to believe in God, say 500 years ago in our Western society, in 2000 many of us find this not only easy but even inescapable. Faith in God is more contestable now than ever before in the history of Western society. We live in an age of contested belief where our our religious beliefs are no longer axiomatic. They're no longer assumed. There's many different options. In other words, we might say that we have more reasons than ever before in Western society to kind of stick to this here-I-am version of discipleship in which we can kind of maintain some control, we can hide, cover all of our bases, put our defenses up. We're a long way from Mark now, so let's get back to the text. There you are, discipleship, the second kind of discipleship. There you are, discipleship, is embodied by the poor widow who gives all she has, all she has to live on in the service of others. I was commenting this week in our staff meeting that this is no-nonsense Jesus. If you're looking for a nuanced Jesus, don't go to Mark 12. Okay? This is the kind of Jesus that I think sometimes embarrasses bookish Christians like Presbyterians. We have a tradition of being bookish Christians. Okay? And uh, I think we'd rather take some time and consider all the arguments. Right? Perhaps form a committee to interview all the people who were there that day and to consider you know, the intentions behind their giving and how their large sums of money went to do all of these wonderful things. We might even consider the, so- the social implications of this text asking ourselves, why is it that a woman, a poor woman, was asked to give all she has while the cultural and spiritual elite flourish in their wealth? But Jesus singles out this woman this woman who gives away everything she has as a small glimpse of the kingdom of God. He invites his disciples over and he says, you see what I see? That right there, that's what I've been trying to tell you. That simple act. If here I am discipleship runs on cheap grace, there you are discipleship runs on costly grace. Costly grace. Costly grace understands that the cross is actually at the center of our Christian formation. And to share in the cross of Jesus Christ means to abandon any identity that we would cling to, that is kind of above this identity. which is new life in Christ. So those identities go something like rich or powerful, accomplished, successful. We often cling to those identities over against the identity that we have in Jesus Christ. To share in the cross means that we die to that. We die to those identities. Costly grace is the reason why the rich young ruler could not follow Jesus. He was unwilling to die to his own will, unwilling to leave all he had behind to follow Jesus. Most importantly, I think this is is key, costly grace has more to do with obedience than with confessions of faith. It has more to do with obedience. When Jesus calls the disciples to come and follow him, he does not first ask them to memorize the Apostles' Creed, right? He doesn't first kind of evaluate what they believe. They have no idea what they believe yet, no idea He doesn't ask them, or he doesn't make sure first that they went to the right seminary. He doesn't make sure if they are conservative or liberal. He doesn't ask to see their reading list, to see what they're sharing on social media. He doesn't ask any of that. He says, follow me. And I think that it is in following Jesus that the disciples learned to believe in him. It is in following Jesus that they learned to believe in him. And I think that it's precisely this equation of discipleship. That by following Jesus, we come to believe in him. That, we, that might help us apply this kind of no-nonsense Jesus, this account of giving all you have to the, to the secular age in which we live, in which belief in God is always accompanied by the cross-pressure cross of doubt. The answer is certainly not to ignore your doubts, to kind of argue them away, or to tell people to just believe harder. Don't do that. I think the answer to this, or maybe one way forward in a secular age, is to find ways to actually practice our faith, even while professing our doubt. To follow Jesus, which includes some movement. Like the woman, we all have something to give. We all have something to give. We've all been called by God to give of ourselves in the service of other people. To love our neighbors. The question is what is the treasury in your life? What is the thing God is calling you to give? It may be time. It is probably the most valuable commodity in our busy, frantic world. It might be money. It might be just a connection. It might be introducing someone to someone else that you know that might help them. It might be a conversation. It might be just sitting in the presence of another person, sitting still as they go through something difficult, as they suffer, and they just need your presence. But we have to create margin in our life for these kinds of ministries to actually help people. We have to create margin in our own life for that. I suspect that whatever God is calling you to give, that it might be the thing that you think you have the least of that you think uh, is most scarce in your life? Because in God's economy, giving the thing you think you have the least of usually leads to the most transformation. What is the thing that you think you have the least of? How is God calling you to give that? The only thing we know about this woman is that she gave all she had. We don't even know her name. We're told We're not told what she was feeling when she walked in front of the crowd and placed her small token in the treasury. I imagine that she felt some degree of embarrassment. I hear that these wealthy people giving large sums of money, and she just had two small coins worth very little. After all, I mean, the small gifts we give, we're afraid that they won't be enough. We're afraid that they won't be enough. You can't tell me that she wasn't thinking about all the good reasons not to give it. And I think that honestly, if we are honest with ourselves, we can come up with all the good reasons not to give of ourselves as well. But I also think that maybe, maybe, she gave what she had out of joy. She gave what she had out of joy gave what she had out of joy. Her act of generosity tells us something about the kingdom of God, that in God's kingdom, even the smallest gifts given in faith become much greater than we could ever imagine. And I can understand why Jesus called his disciples over, why they had a little meeting there. This, this is the upside-down, topsy-turvy, scrambled-up way of the kingdom of God about which Jesus was trying to teach them. And it is this same kingdom, my friends, it is this same kingdom to which we are invited to belong and to bear witness to as we give of ourselves to others. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are filled with doubts of all kinds. In our loneliness, we wonder where you are. In our fear, we wonder if you will give us the courage we need. When our resources are low, when our energy has run out, we wonder how we could possibly give anything else. Forgive us for hiding. Forgive us for our tendency to maintain control over the parts of our lives that you have claimed. Give us what we need to share in the cross of Christ, to put to death the identities that we think are most important so that we might be raised to new life, to a new identity as a beloved child of God, set free to do the works that you have always planned us to do. Gracious God, give us what we need to give all we have believing that in your kingdom it will be enough. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.